Yes, it's Whataboust, a celebration of Reeves and Mortimer. Please welcome your hosts for this podcast, MJ Price and Paula Wiseman. Hello and welcome to Quadabos, a podcast dedicated to the work and genius of Vic Reeves and Bob Mortimer. My name is Matt Price, founder of the Reeves and Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I am Paula Wiseman, the founder and creator of the Divine Comedians podcast. Today we are joined by an actor, writer, comedian, singer, presenter and author with an extensive, very impressive CV to his name. Uh, just naming some of the big hitters from the Great British Bake Off to Les Mis. From Doctor Who to fantasy football, from Bridesmaids to Wonka. Oh, and he was also in a certain sketch show called Little Britain. Over the years, he has appeared in several Reeves and Mortimer shows, most famously as the drumstick-wielding big baby, the man with the scores, George Dawes. Please enter the Novelty Island paddock, Matt Lucas. Hey! Thank you very much. Thank you. Hiya, Matt. Thanks for joining us tonight. You've done a lot, man, in fairness. With, With Jim and Bob, yeah. Well, I've, I've, yeah, I mean, that, it, it all started with them. I was um, probably 16 years old and I watched Big Night Out on TV and I recognised Jim uh, and Bob from, particularly Jim from, was it Knockdown Ginger? Yeah, on, was it Tonight with Jonathan Ross, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, on Jonathan Ross's show. And so he sort of, he used to pop up on things here and there and... Um, I don't know whether he'd been on the word or something like that, but he had, there was something familiar about him and he was always a kind of fun presence. And then I watched the first episode of Vic Reeves' Big Night Out and um, I was furious because (laughs) he kept saying that things were going to happen and they didn't happen. And, you know, later on in the show, (laughs) so-and-so's coming on and and I was just so mystified by it. And and I was kind of angry. I was quite a self-important (laughs) <laughs> and um and i called up the duty log to complain and said that he keeps saying that the show's going to be this and that and then it isn't why is this <laughs> on tv and then the next week i watched it um because bear in mind this was 1990 was it 89 yeah. 1990 yeah yeah and in those days you just watched what was on whether you liked it or not um there was only four channels and uh so I, I watched it and then and then I was like, oh, they did that last week. Oh, right. OK. And by the end of the second episode, I was a convert. And when I started um, Sixth Form College, the first series had been on and, and I made friends with people based on our shared love of that show. Yeah. And we went to see uh, Jim and Bob live, at the, the Vic Lee's Big Night Out live at the Hammersmith Apollo I guess that would have been 91 or 92. Yeah, late night. I think it was at the end of 91. And that was about the most exciting thing. It was actually the second most exciting thing I've ever been to. The first was when I was eight years old and I went to see the kids from fame at the Royal Albert Hall. I thought you were going to say the first time you saw Arsenal. Oh, to be oh, that. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, not those old people. I go and see them all the time. But, um <laughs> Were you the so kind I, of I, person who um, regularly complained about TV shows, Matt? No. It's unusual for a teenager. It was a yeah, I know. But I was quite full of myself. And I think <laughs> I, I thought I knew everything about comedy. And I just didn't understand what I was watching. And, you know, but but um, I became a real, uh, you know, a zealot. I, I, I was a, a follower, you mm. know, a stan, though the term hadn't been uh, created yeah. yet was a huge fan and um you know again back in those days you know information came to you piecemeal uh and you maybe it was a line in in the enemy or melody maker or maybe it was a something in you know one of the newspapers but or something somebody had heard someone say on radio one or there was no sort of surefire way to get information so yeah finding out when the new series would come on you know that was mm. just just luck if you yeah. heard when it was on it was it was the wild west out there kind of the wild west in a different way because now there's too much information and, oh, yeah. and 
the majority of it is unreliable. But mm. back then, you just you you might a whole series happened and you wouldn't have known. Mm. And um, so yeah, I thought the second series was even better actually. And and I I, I there were two TV shows that were seminal for me. One was Victory's Big Night Out, and the other around that time was the Alan Bleasdale drama GBH. Oh, and both yeah. of them I was obsessed with. They were around the same time. And I would watch Big Night Out and I would record it and then I would watch it back immediately after and watch it probably every night that week until the next week's show. And then I'd have two on the tape and then three on the tape. And I would just watch them again and again and again. And I I loved the rhythm of it and the strangeness of the language and the fluency of the language as well, because they weren't mm. just saying strange things, but they were saying them with such ease and assuredness. And it's a, it was a little bit like when you watch Stanley Unwin, you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, uh, and it just uh, occupied its own space. And it also came around at a time when, the, you know, the, the, the Conservatives had been in for a decade, 11, 12 years, and there was a sense of just hopelessness. And what had happened was that um, a complete sort of alternative culture had grown out of that dissatisfaction. Um, but almost everyone, it seemed, was just doing political comedy. Yeah. And... Um, it was just everywhere and it was very good. You know, Ben Elton was very good. Mark Thomas was very good. Kevin Day, the, Mark Steele. These were very, Jeremy Hardy, these were very accomplished, um, witty people. Newman and Baddiel were also satirical, but it was about satire. And Big Night Out was just its own peculiar thing. Mm. And so it felt so refreshing mm. to have this, this you know, and, and, and there are... Um, nods to Morecambe and Wise and the mainstream past, but it's definitely its own thing. Yeah, yeah it was I think like it's... a tidal change, wasn't it, you know? Yes, and so influential on then on, you know, Harry Hill and um, many other comedians, me and David, and uh, obviously Lee Francis, you can see it everywhere. But um, yeah, it was such a breath of fresh air when it came along. So it was, it was anchored in that world of light entertainment. So we recognised it, the opening song and the game show elements, et cetera, et cetera. But yet it was bringing in such these bizarre elements that we hadn't seen before. So we sort of had a hook on it, but then it took us off into a, a new flights of fancy. Yeah, definitely. And and then there were characters in Big Night Out that you loved, Graham Lister. I sort of had a mild obsession with all the ponderers, mm -hmm. smell to get well. You know, the the the, the characters that sort of came back yeah. And how exciting it was to see them and um, action image exchange. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's such a funny show. It's so it's so charming and it's so anarchic. And, I, you know, it's gloriously pointless as well. There's there's nothing of any meaning to it. There's no, yeah. you know, it's just it's just a half an hour of just forgetting life and yeah. any stresses and strains you have. Also, it did feel like being part of a club. Yeah, definitely. It was indecipherable unless you were a returning viewer. I think the first time you watched it, it was just, <laughs> it was it was like standing outside a gate that wouldn't open. And so you had to watch it a couple of times. You had to have the patience, but then it does repay you. Mm. So I remember telling a friend of ours, um, me and my one friend were really obsessed and there was another, and the three of us who never watched it, we said, please watch this show. And he watched it one Friday night. So what do you think? Just a lot of blokes running in and out of doors with bags on their heads. I said, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Isn't it great? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it was a um, it was a triumph, really. Yeah. So, so you find yourself with Vic and Bob in the Smelleries and Autumn but five years later. So what happened between that well, complaining about the show to being on, on a TV show with them? I was a fan. Um as big a fan of theirs as I knew, me and my friends Alex and Claire at um, college, the three of us. And um, I started doing stand-up comedy. I, I, I was in the National Youth Theatre when I was 16 and I met this very strange tall man who was three years older than me and he just made me laugh a lot. And he, his name was David and he, uh, I met him in, when I was 16, I was on a kind of junior course in the National Youth Theatre in the summer holidays. And 
I was staying in a halls of residence in Tufnell Park and David Williams, his name was, was there. Um, and he was older than me. He was 19. He was in a play put on by the National Youth Theatre. And um, I mean, I've told this story many times, but he he did an impression of Frankie Howard that everybody talked about. Um, and uh, we were introduced to each other so that we could sort of swap impressions. So we met in the bar in, in Tufnell Park and he was a huge Vic and Bob fan as well. And in the end, he actually played Soft Allen, didn't he? Shooting <laughs> stars. But um, we worked together the year after. We were in uh, a production of The Tempest where David was either Stefano or Trinkolo. I can never remember. But I was a, a techie. So I was bringing props on and off stage. I didn't have any lines or any. I wasn't acting in it. But um, I used to watch David from the side of the stage when I was 17 and he was he would have been 20 in the summer of 1991. And I remember thinking I have two ambitions, one day to meet Vic and Bob and the other is to one day share the stage with David Williams. And of course that happened. And 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 David was in this double act doing very surreal stand up, very, very influenced by Jim and Bob um, with a guy called Jason Bradbury, who went on to present the gadget show. Yeah. on channel five yeah and it's kind of a often on tv doing doing things and um they were in a double act and i used to go and watch them and sometimes they go down really well and sometimes they really wouldn't but i i thought they were the the funniest thing in the world and i used to go and watch them and knowing someone who was on the comedy circuit for me was the bridge to actually giving it a go myself so i started doing open spots and um i did this character called sir bernard chumley who um i'd started writing when I was about 16 and just doing the voice and doing the face. And he was based on these kind of fruity old actors that I had encountered in youth theater that just sort of showed a keen interest in uh, us young gentlemen. And um, <laughs> well, no, not really in me, but in the, in <laughs> the head, blue eyed uh, young actors. And, um, and also Harry Enfield had done this show uh, Norbert Smith, a life mm. South Bank show parody. Yeah, yeah. And he'd had a character in it called Sir Donald Stuffy, and I remember it was a sort of Donald Sindon, Donald Wolfett kind of theatrical old ham, and and there was a bit of him in Sir Bernard as well because I thought that was really funny, and um, so I so I had this character and and uh, I did it stand up, and I, I'd actually only been doing open spots for five weeks. I had a job in the day working at Chelsea Football Club in their in their shop. I'm a massive Arsenal fan, but I, I got a job working there. <laughs> and um and I had a place at university uh waiting for me um wow. at Bristol University to do theatre, film and television. But I was taking a year off because I wanted to do stand up. And and my mum had said you can do it but you need to bring some money and you know, hence the 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 job in the shop. But I would do stand up in the evenings and I'd actually only been doing it for five weeks. So I'd probably only done four or five gigs. And I turned up to the White Horse in Belsize Park on, um, it was November, 1992, uh, 18 years old. Uh, and they had a club downstairs there called the VD Clinic, which was the Val Dunican Clinic, which was a club <laughs> for open spots. And I walked into the pub and I did a double take because Bob Mortimer was in the, uh, was just in the pub having a drink with some people. And I, I, you know, my heart was racing Yeah. and uh, I went up to him and I, I already, I think I might have already had my wig on because I used to, I'd gone to a couple of gigs and I used to wear a wig as Sir Bernard and I'd gone to a couple of gigs and put the, and gone in the bar and then put the wig on just before I went on stage. And I used to do a thing where the wig came off during the act and it would make the audience gasp, but they'd already seen me without a hair. So it just hadn't worked. So I used to always put the wig on before I actually went into the pub. Uh, so I so I think I had my wig on and I saw Bob Mortimer there and I just went up to him and said, hello, you know, introduced myself. And um, he was just, it was a very, very brief. And I said, are you watching the comedy tonight? He went, yeah, I go, oh, I'm going to be on. He was like, oh, okay. And he was polite, but, it, but also, you know, he was with his friends and, um, and he's he's very shy. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a very brief conversation. Anyway, I, you know, having Bob in the audience, I went for it. I absolutely <laughs> gave it everything. I just I couldn't believe it. I'm standing on stage and Bob Mortimer is in the audience. And and bear in mind, this is a small room. 
um, a kind of thin room. So there's only sort of five or six seats in every row, but it goes back a fair way. Mm. And I have a memory and I, I, I have a memory of this and I don't know whether it's a real memory or a false memory, but my memory tells me that during my act, he moved towards the front to get a closer look of me. Yeah. Don't know if that's true or not, but I did the routine and I gave it everything. And it was a very strange routine. And I remember just thinking, well, Bob Mortimer's in the audience and he's entertained me and I just want to entertain him. I didn't have any ambition beyond that in that moment. Just, I don't want to let myself down and I don't want to be the guy that dies a death in front of Bob Mortimer. And um, I performed and then, and it went down well, you know, and I hadn't had, I'd only done a handful of gigs. So to, to go down well was not something that I took for granted because I, I think more of my gigs had not gone well because what I was doing was A, very strange and B, just wasn't, I wasn't very good. Um, mm. But Bob came up to me. Uh, he looked for me in the bar and came up to me and introduced himself and said, you know, my name's Robert and I work at a company called Channel X. So he obviously hadn't remembered that I'd met him beforehand. Uh, I guess it had just, it hadn't registered with him because it was such a, I literally just shaken his hand. Uh, and, and he introduced himself and said, you know, my name's Robert and uh, I work at a company called Channel X and I'd love to, to tell them about you and try and help you get work. And he wanted to know a bit about me. And I was like, well, I, I, you don't have to introduce yourself. I know who you are. <laughs> um, and I, um, I wrote down my phone number and gave it to him. Or did he write down his number and give it to me? I can't remember. We might have swapped numbers. I can't remember. But I do know that we, I got to university and I think I'd written him a letter saying, you know, I've gone to university and I'm going to do a bit of comedy in the meantime, but I'm not going to really go on the comedy circuit properly until I leave university in three years time. And I think he wrote me a letter back saying, um, you know, obviously that's your decision, but I, I don't, you know, I think, I don't think you should wait three years for this. I don't, I think, you know, I think you have something special wow. and, um, uh, please keep in touch. And I sent him, I remember recording a, recording an audio cassette just for him doing my routine and just talking absolute rubbish as Sir Bernard and sending it to him. And he, um, I think he wrote me a letter saying, call me, I, I have something. This is all before email, you see. So then I, I remember going to the student union and going to the phone box because I didn't have a mobile phone or anything like that and putting my money in the, in the call box. And the surrealness of being stood in this student union where probably half the people in there would have been Reeves and Mortimer fanatics. And I'm just on a payphone with a <laughs> of, Oh my God, so surreal. 10 P pieces, putting them in, talking to Bob Mortimer um, <laughs> on the phone. And he said to me, um, there's someone I know, they are doing a television show on ITV of stand-ups. And um, have you got any gigs coming up in London? Because uh, I'd love to bring her. She's producing the series and I'd love to bring her along. And I um, I managed to get a gig at the Comedy Cafe and uh, Rosemary McGowan, her name was, she was a producer. She came down and Bob came uh, from Camberwell where he was living with uh, Lisa, his now his wife. And they came and I think their friend, Lisa's friend Roma came as well. And they came and I performed and I went down well. And then Rosemary called me the next day and said, yes, would you like to come on the show and do your stand up? So I was I was 19 and I'd wow. been booked to stand up on a TV show and it was all thanks to Bob. And I did that. And then um, that summer I went to the Edinburgh Festival yeah. with Dorian Crook. Now, I think you've spoken with Dorian. Yeah. 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 So Dorian was the reason why Bob was at the White Horse that night, because Dorian had been at art school with Jim mm -hmm. and it was part of Big Night Out. And Dorian was comparing that gig. So I had stayed in touch with Dorian as well, and we'd become friendly. And in the summer of 1994, Dorian went to the Edinburgh Festival with a show called A Comedy Cavalcade, and I was the guest in the show, and I did 15 minutes as Sir Bernard during the show. And Jim and Bob came up to the Edinburgh Festival, and we hung out there. And, um, and then Bob did an interview for Smash Hits, like a questionnaire, mm -hmm. and... Uh, they are, it said his favorite comedian and he put Bernard Chumley. Wow. And, um, and so suddenly I had a kind of heat around me because I had this endorsement from Bob Mortimer. And, um, uh, and then I met Jim 
Jim came to one of the war. I think he came to one of the warm up shows. I don't know if Jim came to Edinburgh. Bob certainly came, but Jim and Bob came to one of the warm up shows in London. And then in 1999, uh, and then I went to a recording or a couple of recordings of the Smell of Reeves and Mortimer series one. Mm -hmm. I sat in the green room and watched the monitor. And then at the uh, after the recording, I saw Bob and in the green room and I was introduced to Jim. Uh, and I think that might that might have been the first time I met Jim. And I just remember his accent was very strong and he'd had a few drinks already. I remember finding it quite hard to understand him. <laughs> but then in in uh, 94, when I was 20, they asked me to be in The Smell of Reeves and Mortimer. And that was amazing. And I remember going to a rehearsal with them. And uh, in in I think it was in the American church on um, uh, near Tottenham Court Road. And um, we had a rehearsal. Mark, I think... I think John Birkin was the director. Yeah, and then I and then Jim and Bob took me to the Groucho Club um, for drinks and dinner. After that, and it was it was it was uh, Rosh Hashanah. It was a Jewish New Year, and I and I left early I, from the family to to go to this. And they sat me down. I remember sitting on a sofa with one either side of me on this sofa in the, the Groucho Club, and they said, "Look, we're going to work with you because we really like what you do, um, and we'll work with you until you've launched yourself, and then." you'll go and we'll find someone else and work with them. Right. So they sort of, they made that clear to me from, from the beginning. Anyway, we were there. And then, um, and then a weird thing happened, which was uh, this man came in who was quite wild and uh, Jim knew him and it was Damien Hurst. And um, Damien took us up to a room with, and Keith Allen was in there and they'd made a short film and they showed us their short film. Bear in mind, I'd never been to the Groucho Club before. And then um, not long afterwards, early the next year, I was contacted um, that, that Damien Hurst and Keith Allen were directing a video for Blur for Country House. <laughs> and they had seen, they saw Jim in the Grout Show and they said, who's that bald guy you work with? And they meant Fred Elwood, who played <laughs> Led. But Jim was drunk and just assumed he meant me. You. Yeah. And so I ended up being in the, in the Country House video for Blur. <laughs> Um, and then I ended up touring with Blur being their support. <laughs> yeah. So weird how things happen. But I was in The Smell of Reeves and Mortimer and I played uh, John Stott, the Stott's younger younger oh, brother. that's fantastic. Amazing. I was in the pub inside the organ, which I loved. Um, that was great, although Jim broke wind in there, which wasn't great. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Keir, who was Uncle Peter, was so lovely, you know, because here I was, the new boy being fated, you know, and I didn't know whether he'd feel like Oh, who's this guy coming on? Mm. He never felt like that at all. And I used to go and gig with Dave as Charlie Chuck, and I do Sir Bernard Chumley, and I used to support him sometimes. And he was he was lovely. Um, and uh, Mike Wattam, uh, yeah. I remember, was on the shows. He was very nice. And Jim and Bob's friends were really friendly. There was a guy called Andy Blackie, and of course John Irvin, and they were just always so welcoming and friendly. And so I did that um, that series of The Smell of Reeves and Mortimer, and I was in the um, I was Quentin Mint. I won MasterChef in <laughs> <laughs> Greatest Sketches and Walliams. Um, uh, watched it and had a terrible nightmare that night. <laughs> and we were all in the banks. Yeah, and we were writing the next day and he was like, I'm really traumatised by this. <laughs> um, yeah, my winner banks with the, with the breakfast that's a cooked yeah. breakfast. It's the face of Jesus, isn't it? Um, yeah. And you were the mayor to Cox and Evans. I was the mayor. And then we did these sketches which were never used. We did, I don't think they were ever used, but we spent ages filming them where we were this American family and they were these spoofed TV commercials. And they were, I don't think they were ever seen. And I've got a feeling we reshot them and they were still never shown. Uh, it was just amazing to be on a TV set as well. Cause I hadn't really, you know, I'd been in, I'd done one sketch in the Punt and Dennis show and I'd done a couple of stand up appearances. But I hadn't really been hired to act in anything before, and I was still only twenty, and I was I was a, I was a young twenty as well. So I mean, I owe them everything—my confidence, my education, you know. And then Shooting Stars happened, and they did the pilot for Shooting Stars, which I wasn't part of. Mm, yeah. Um, on that, um, was it? It was uh, on uh, at home with Vic and Bob. Yeah, and I think Dorian was the warm-up. And I think he said that the recording was like three or four hours. Yeah. And it would have been quite, um, you know, tough for everybody. It was such a long recording. But 
um, they they asked me to be George Dawes, the baby, and they wanted me to wear a nappy, and I I just said I can't wear a nappy. But they knew that I played the drums. I said I would. I mean, I've said this before, but I said I would wear a blue romper suit, and it came and it was pink. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really have any brief. And I remember rehearsing the show and just not knowing what to do and trying to be like Angus Dayton when he gave the scores on Have I Got News For You, just not really knowing what to do. And I don't think mm. I ever really knew in the first series what I was supposed to be doing. But there was this thing, which was that when you watched Vic and Bob, you just those were the ones you wanted to see and you didn't always want to see all the other people that they had. And I think... The audience were just not really interested or engaged with me. And there's no reason why they would have been. I wasn't really doing anything interesting. I was just a ball bloke yelling, um, <laughs> dressed as a baby. And it wasn't really clear what my purpose was. Yeah. And um, I uh, I was kind of stiffing on the show. I wasn't really doing anything. Um, but they came to me. It was probably the fourth or fifth recording of an episode it was uh, I think Cannon and Ball were on the show I've got a feeling and uh, the camera came to me and I went um, and bear in mind also you know when when doing the scores they go what are the scores George Dawes and then and 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 then what would happen is they'd have to move all the cameras to me and swing them around so mm. it wasn't the rhythm that you saw on the show mm. it was what the scores George Dawes and then pause move the cameras Dry. So it didn't, it was, it was harder than you think to do. Yeah. A laugh. But the camera came to me and I just went, so you want to know the scores then, you fat cow? And I think the truth <laughs> is that it, it sounded as if I was going to say a different word to cow. <laughs> and there was, for whatever reason, the gods of comedy were smiling on me. I never knew what I was going to say. And that's just what came out. For whatever reason, there was hysteria. That was the response was, hysteria and then for the rest of that recording everything i said the audience were just with me and on my side yeah. and it like that was the moment i sort of came of age really but it wasn't until about halfway through the recordings um and the other thing that sometimes happened was um we'd be we'd be recording the show and you know uh time was running out the recordings would be overrunning and they'd reshoot all my scores at the very end with the retakes mm -hmm. and the audience would be just leaving while I was doing them, wow. you know, on the first series. But when the second series came on, there was a familiarity. Now the audience knew who I was, they were at peace. And I got a bit better and a bit bolder and a bit more daring. Um, and by then I guess everyone realized that the scores didn't really matter. The <laughs> yeah. quiz element, who's going to win isn't really important. <laughs> yeah, and we all got more comfortable. And the other thing I think about the second series, I've got a feeling that the second series had this run. It was like about 14 episodes yeah, long. Yeah, it's a long one. It's a long run. And I think there is just that thing, which is we just bludgeoned the audience. Yeah. <laughs> we just always on. And they used to do a narrative repeat then, which was a new thing they were doing where they'd show it on a Friday night and then again mm. on a Sunday. And people who'd missed it, you know, because they'd been at the pub, would watch it when they were waking up from their hangovers and and... So it was it was BBC Two's biggest show, and and um, and it was an amazing thing to be part of. You know, it was tough. It was a tough gig. We had a, a producer called Alan Mark, who who sort of um, his thing. You know, people have a thing, and his thing is like, I'm the cynic. I'm the kind of t I'll tell it how it is bloke. He's the guy that whenever you saw a TV show, you know, we'd come in to record and. We'd always be talking about whatever the new comedy show was that week, whether it was Lee Evans or the new Bedeal and Bedeal, David Bedeal show or whatever, you know, whatever was on. And his thing was that he just automatically he thought everything was crap. But really, I suspect he thought it was crap because it wasn't made by his company. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he, yeah. That was his kind of thing. So sometimes it was really refreshing to have somebody like that who was very unromantic and was very kind of... Um, blunt sometimes you need someone who's blunt i work mm -hmm. on fantasy football league now and our producer spencer is really blunt um <laughs> but spencer if something's funny he'll laugh he'll roar you know and then you know okay we've got a chance with this i think alan's thing was um you know to be blunt but vic and bob loved him because 
what Alan did have a brilliant ability to do was that, um, you know, when you're making a show on a small budget and you need to spend £15,000 on a, you know, a hammer made of jelly or whatever the hell it is that Jim and Bob have asked for, he's the guy that will make sure that that gets made. He's the guy that says, no, if that's what they want, that's what they must have. Mm. Uh, he, he He knew the value of those weird requests, even when they were expensive. He got it. Mm. And he was like, oh, if that's what they want, that's what they must have. And he was brilliant at that, Alan Mark, you know. So he was invaluable to the show. And then I got to know Ulrika, uh, and she was, you know, she was one of the most famous people in the country at the time. You know, I mean, she was more famous than Vic and Bob because she was presenting Gladiators, or she had just presented Gladiators, and she was the darling of the tabloids. She was mm. written about every day. So she was the most she was the highest she was the star of that show in a way mm. um she was the, the 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 biggest one yeah and of course george developed over the series and eventually george's songs started to appear some of my favorites life in old people's home mm. 1942 <laughs> yeah. lesbians of course the lesbian calypso <laughs> was written uh, by me and david oh was it williams yeah and we used to do it in edinburgh and the they actually, we used to, I used to, I, almost all of the songs I wrote the words of music, but the Lesbian Calypso, the tune for that has, was written by um, a guy called Tim Atak that we, that we, uh, who used to appear in our stage show uh, as our pianist when me and David did our shows in Edinburgh. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I just started doing funny songs and, and uh, we, I think what it was, we'd done the Lesbian Calypso in our Edinburgh show, me and David. And then I said, oh, do you mind to David if I do it on Shooting Stars? He's like, no, I think you should. That's a really mm. good idea. And then I started, I did that. And Bob loved it. He was like, you, you've, got to, you've got to do more. He was like, what the hell is this? You've got to do more. They were very good. They said, you know, take your idea that's three minutes and cut it in half and then cut it in half again. Mm. And do songs that last 45 seconds and we can use them. Any longer than that, we can't use them. And I'd sometimes test them out on him and he'd go, it's a really good song, but it's not funny. Um, which, <laughs> oh, no, he didn't say it. He didn't yeah, say yeah, it. Yeah. Do it in a, like a really helpful way, which is it's yeah. great. Won't make... That's what you want. You want that it's feedback. Yeah. And it was like, well, I'd rather hear it from him than mm. the audience not laugh. But then yeah. I would get to a point where they trusted me and they didn't. I used to, they used to leave the studio when I rehearsed the songs so that you, you know, when they're watching me do peanuts and not, <laughs> they had no idea that that's what I, going to be doing you know that's a um a surprise for them or you know baked potato was a surprise oh. for them they didn't know i don't think they even knew that there was you know a puppeteer and a puppet underneath <laughs> that, um uh cloche I mean, a thank you so much for letting us use peanuts music as our intro to the podcast which is oh cool you're fantastic. welcome and the baked potato i mean it's did you imagine at the well, you didn't know no COVID was coming, but did you imagine becoming a hero <laughs> of COVID? I mean, no, but oh. I to to for my own sanity, I, I ordered that electric piano because I just because basically I was living in America and my piano is in America in storage because I sold my house and I had a baby grand piano. And where I live in London is 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 a very small two-bedroom muse house. And that I wouldn't be able to get that piano. I wouldn't, I, it wouldn't fit. I live in a very narrow little, it's almost like living on a houseboat. It's a very narrow little house. Right. And I love it, by the way. Um, and so I bought an electric piano and I was just playing and I'm not really a pianist. And so I think, thank you, baked potato only has three or four chords in it anyway. So I was just playing it and I was watching all the people on the news, like not social distancing. And I was kind of, Panicking, and I remember when I was a kid, trying to get my dad to give up smoking, which he did do for a little while. And there were these adverts on TV, and there were Superman adverts, cartoons, and there was a villain called Nick Oteen with adverts <laughs> about not smoking. And and because of those adverts, I used to lobby my dad to say stop smoking, and he did for a while. And I thought if I can do something that appeals to the kids, they'll lobby their parents. And also, I thought if I make this really simple for the kids to understand, then it might help them because, I mean, as adults, it was so much to comprehend this sudden pandemic. Yeah. But as kids, like, 
you know, wash your hands. You can't go outdoors. You can't do this. You can't do that. It was so, it must've been so um, uh, discombobulating mm -hmm. and, uh you know cause the cause of a lot of anxiety for kids you know who because uh, uh, there's a comfort in routine and the routines were changing mm. and teachers were becoming ill and everything so I, I just changed the lyrics to that song and i just put it on twitter and then it and then it went viral overnight <laughs> it was huge it was huge yeah yeah and i, and I just I've, i'm writing a musical and the song i've worked the song in, into 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 the musical it was in the book isn't it and the, in the book, yeah, slept in through the... christmas which is awesome yeah. it's in there thank you thank you yeah songs in it and baked potato makes an appearance yeah it does it's yeah. it's inside a song a bigger song called chips and chips and chips now yeah, yeah. um yeah. but the character of baked potato which uh you know i own is is in the is a character in the musical yeah oh, wow there's also um a an Easter egg, a brief shout of peanuts in the in the, uh, the songs in the book, isn't there? There is, there is. You can hear a peanuts in there, which was in, peanuts was inspired by the peanut sellers that used to um, roam the uh, North Bank at Highbury uh, when I used to go to football in the eighties. They they had long hair and flares, and uh, so. But um, the great thing about peanuts, you know, that look we ended up using for Andy Pipkin in um, Little Britain. Uh, that wig and those uh, similar glasses. But uh, with baked potato, the, the, the good thing was that um, I was involved uh, in, in this charity called Feed NHS, which got food to medical staff when the shelves of the supermarkets were empty um, in those very early days of the pandemic. And, um, uh, and, and Helen McCrory and Damian Lewis and uh, a guy called John Vincent, who I was at school with, who's the guy that set up uh, Leon, you know that those those um, healthy fast food places. Mm. Um, the four of us set up this this charity. I mean, the three of them did the bulk of the work. You know, I mean, Helen McCrory was terminally ill and spent her last period on this planet mm. doing things for people. Mm. It's quite amazing. Um, but the song was able to raise some money for Feed NHS, and we published the book uh, yeah. as well, the book of the song and um so so that so that was really good so baked potato had a good kind of a happy ending you know yeah. uh it was able to it was able to i mean the the um the amazing thing is that the um the it, i think it's in uh hansard isn't that the the government records yeah there as like people said that it <laughs> that it made it educated people the, in terms of messaging it educated people um about the pandemic as effectively, if not more effectively than any sort of government issue. <laughs> well, you want something yeah. simple, don't you? You don't need yeah. anything yeah. too complicated at that, those kind no, of No, and, and that's, and it's a good lesson to learn, which is, is the simplicity. And I'm plotting my second novel at the moment and it's way too complex and I'm struggling with it. And that's that's it, you know, and and I was with Williams yesterday and of course he's, his work is, is if I say simple, I mean it in the, in the, in the most complimentary way, which is, you know, Reese. Shearsmith from the League of Gentlemen always, always asked this question, what is the thing of it? That's the mm. thing he says, what is the thing of it? And it's a great question to ask. And in fact, if you go back to, you know, Jim and Bob's stuff, what is the thing of it? You know, their, their work isn't hugely textured in a way. Mm. They just go, what is the joke? Oh, the joke is that Bob hits Jim with a, puts a bucket over Jim's head and hits him. <laughs> And when the bucket comes off, Jim's head is squashing the shape of the bucket, you know, and it's it's clever because it's simple, you know, and and they're brilliant at that. And so they were great. You know, I was I was their apprentice and I learned I couldn't have learned from two greater masters. And um, I went on to do bits in um, Bang Bang and yeah. um, Profane Watermelon. I liked in Bang Bang. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> I got terrible, terrible. Doesn't look um, comfortable. I got really claustrophobic down there. It was horrible. Yeah. It was horrible. I was very anxious, but it is, it, it's, I forgot about that sketch. That, that was very, <laughs> very good. And, and, um, uh, Randall Hopkirk, I did a yeah, bit. Yeah. With Tom Baker. Yeah. And that was, and that was great. Yeah. Um, working with Tom Baker cause we'd done little Britain already, uh, uh on radio. Oh, of course. Mm, yeah. I already knew him and I got to sit on his lap. And when <laughs> I was doing Randall Hopkirk, I said to Jim and Bob, we should just do shooting stars again. Why not? And so it came back. 
and um and that was fun and and it was a different it was you know i think i i it, it was i enjoyed it a lot more with will self and jack d and johnny vegas it was a much happier that group of people was a much it was a better it was a happier more harmonic uh more harmonious i should say uh, uh grouping and uh, we laughed a lot and I mean, a lot God. of sketches as well in those series. More sketches, and to have um, yeah. Vegas there is. What a what a comic force of nature he is, and oh, it's incredible. That changed the energy of the show, and um, you know, and I used to just have I used to sit there with that drum kit and go, I've got the best seat in the house. You know, Jack, <laughs> Jack B's really funny, and you know, and and Jim and Bob are amazing, and Johnny Vegas is amazing, and I just get to sit here. You know, yeah. and yeah, it was it was great. Also, when shooting stars began, I was paid four hundred and fifty quid a show, and when it came back, I was paid a lot more. So I was also... <laughs> when it came when it came back in two thousand and two, I was starting to, you know, get a bit. Uh, Little Britain was on radio, I think, mm. then. and then it came back again. In was it two thousand and eight, and that was after Little Britain, and yeah. then. And then that was, uh, yeah, it was great to come back again. And, and um, it was fun. I did six series of it in total. Yeah. And um, I don't think I've seen, oh, you know when the last time I saw Jim and Bob was, I think, a read-through for this film they're trying to get. Oh, made. yes. Oh, oh, God, here we go. We ask everyone fight. about the glove. We ask yeah, everyone. I look at my diary. Let me, he's obsessed, he's glove, obsessed with it. Yeah. I type in glove, the glove read through. Right. Wednesday, the 24th of October, 2018. And I wow. think probably the last time I saw them. Um, yeah. Well, Bob is very, um, you know, reclusive. And Jim stays in and does his 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 work. But also the other thing is, in fairness, I, I lived in America for seven years. So mm. yeah. I'm yeah. just away. But um, yeah, if I see him again, I'd love to see, you know, I'm sure I'll see him again at yeah. some point. Um I, it, me and Bob email each other sometimes, you know, just absolute nonsense. Um, but I think I think Catterick has to be one oh, of yeah. my favourite things you've ever Those done. Roy Oates. Oh, Roy Oates. What, what a, a character. character. Yeah, <laughs> that was... That How was... do you prepare for a character like Well, that's an accent that you wouldn't be allowed to do anymore. Um, <laughs> yes. I, and I it's practice... hard to pinpoint where he's from, Roy. Yeah. And I practice walking in those boots. Oh, the kinky man. boots. Kinky boots. And yeah. that was great. And also that was great because Morwenna was in it and Tim Healy and Reese Shearsmith. So yeah. they surrounded themselves with a really great cast of actors in that. Mark Benton as well. Oh, yes, yeah. of course. Um, He's great. And yeah, Morwenna. And so that I it, it kind of made Jim and Bob raise their game as well, I think, as performers, because they mm. surrounded themselves with a very good cast. And yeah. um But like the blooper reels that we've seen from Catterick. Well, <laughs> you know what? Shellfish and shit. <laughs> the thing is i'm much but i used to be a terrible terrible giggler i mean i used to be there's a there's a uh i nearly died on catrick through laughing and i'm much <laughs> when i'm with vic and bob i just lose it and i just can't stop laughing oh you know what i did do um when they brought big night out back i'm in the pilot i don't know that might dragon happen. bone man yeah maybe that was after maybe that was um is that 2017 the pilot okay so the glove read through yeah was something after. like that yeah um but um yeah i did rag and bone man but there's a there's i'll leave you with this which was on catering <laughs> um you know between takes we were in this garden center and um mark benton said did you hear samantha janus has changed her name by deep pole <laughs> and i went oh no i didn't know and he went yeah she's now called samantha jarshole <laughs> I um I was drinking some water at the time and I couldn't coordinate. I started drowning on the oh water. My God. And drowning and I was on the floor and I lose consciousness through laughing. And I thought, oh my God, I'm gonna actually die laughing. What a way and, to go. Yeah. And like I, the guy I, who watched the goodies. I, yeah, <laughs> it was like the guy who watched the goodies. And it really wow. was. It was I think it must have been very disturbing for everybody. It was certainly yeah. for me. And it really was one of the scariest moments in my life. It was also one of the funniest moments in my All life. All the way to go, yeah. Yeah, and uh, but I really, really, really was was split second away from losing consciousness. And um, 
But mm. it's that thing when you're on a set, everyone's like, you're right, you're right. Okay, turning over. <laughs> I remember having to like, act. come on, Matt, we're on the clock. <laughs> yeah, just still gasping for breath. Oh, my God. The garden center. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So but, cool. you know, I owe Jim and Bob everything, you know, I, I, as, and David Williams. I owe them. Those three people, I owe them everything, really. And, and, and what the confidence it gave me just as a human being to be endorsed by them and the fun we had over the years. And I used to go to their, I went to, used to go to Jim's house and stay over. And I think the only person who's ever been to Bob's house ever, <laughs> I think, um, is Dorian. I think Paul Whitehouse went once. <laughs> uh, but I, I, um, they were so kind to me and encouraging. And my God, they must have put up with a lot of very unfunny stuff that I did. You know, so much of what I did didn't work. But they never, mm. you know, they just were like, I always thought, are they going to get rid of me? But no. You know, a year later, I'd always get a call and I'd be wearing a Geordie jumper or some Geordie. <laughs> <laughs> no, but there was so just... much trust involved in you working with oh them. Do you know God, what I mean? Yeah. Like, they obviously loved what you did and trusted you to do what you do, you know? They did. And they trusted me probably before they ought to have done. And I, but I, you know, I learned fast and, um, you know, they, they, I mean, it is honestly, I always say to people, you know, it must, like if I'd been a guitarist and I was 18 years old and I was spotted by, you know, Lennon and McCartney and asked to join the Beatles. I'd grown up and I was, you know, I was 18 when I met Bob Yeah, and I had a very tough childhood you know, and, and I'd lost my hair when I was six and my parents had divorced and my dad had gone to prison and I'd struggled with my weight and I'd struggled with my sexuality and, you know, and not having hair. I used to get teased a lot and bullied a lot. And, and my comedy was strange and angry. Bob always said I was the angriest man he'd ever met. And, and, and which is saying something if you've met Mark Lamar. And, <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I don't think I was you know, the easiest person to warm to. I think I was a strange, strange guy. And, um, you know, and also was, they were quite rock and roll and I, I wasn't a boozer, you know, and I wasn't, you know, I was always the kind of the sober one and all that, but, um, but they embraced me and they took me on and, and under their wing. And I learned everything from them and David. Uh, I'm just, now I can afford to buy all the peanuts I want. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, I like I, I need to bring up Wonka. Just oh, yeah. incredible. I've seen it three times so far. Oh wow. We have a mutual friend in Neil Hannon. Oh, he's amazing. You know Neil too. He's a good boy. I've known Neil for around the same time that uh, I met Jim and Bob, only a couple of years later. Yeah. Yeah, yeah Neil's a great man and what a what a musician he is. But yeah, yeah Wonka, yeah. I mean, God, it's it's huge, isn't it? It's just no, it's just become it's just taken uh, more Massive. than half a billion now, hasn't it? So, yeah. wow. Yeah, I'm just very lucky. I, I you know, I, uh, Paul King directed Come Fly With Me and he oh, went, did, he? And did uh, the two Paddington films. He co wrote mm. them and directed mm. them. And I've just been so lucky to, you know, that, that he asks me back to do the next thing, you know. Yeah, and... I mean, Prod knows. I mean, no, we, we never really knew anything about the character, did we, be beforehand? So it's kind no, of it's a... nice to to put a face to the yeah you know this evil chocolatier <laughs> it's an origin story and yeah, um, definitely yeah and it's and it's done really well people seem to love it and um you know so uh the I, wig was, I, the wig was I, great the great wig was great you, you flew you did a I lot of flying in that film. i sang i danced oh man yeah and was, i loved it, your little your little trio with patterson and matt just yeah they're very good they're, yeah we had a good chemistry and and um you know maybe maybe we'll all get a chance to do it again yeah the film has gone down so well that uh i don't know i don't know if they'll if they'll you know we're we're contracted to do more movies but that, mm. that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean mm. they'll necessarily ask us to do them they might, mm. might have a different story to tell next time but yeah. um it was it was great fun to be part of and i hadn't acted much for a while and um i'm sort of happy writing but occasionally something comes up and I go, yeah, go on then. And I'm, really, <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really glad to be part of that, you know. Yeah, I think well, Neil's been nominated for an Oscar, so he's all good. Oh, wow. For which wow. song? I think it it, uh, it was World, World of Our Own. World of Our Own, yeah. Well, that's mm. beautiful. Oh, wow. How amazing. Okay. Wow, I better mm -hmm. contact him. One, one last question, Matt. Um, 
general knowledge, really. Obviously, you're presenting fantasy football now. Bob was a uh, on the original fantasy football on the uh, Skinner and Badil years. Can you remember the name of Bob's team? Well, was it? It wasn't Atletico Mints, was it? That no, was no, it wasn't. No, it was Beg Tets. Oh, Beg Tets, yeah, Beg Tets. B e g t e t s. Just to clarify. I remember he said that Thomas Brolin looks like a very handsome pig. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us, Matt. There really was quite a boast. Thank you. Congratulations. Um, slightly rippled with a flat underside. <laughs> we are geeks. Oh, um, we know. It was, it was, uh, it's been lovely listening to your podcast. And, oh, and, thanks, oh, thanks so much. Because uh, at the end of it, I am a Vic and Bob fan, you know. So, you know, long may they live and prosper and long may their work be praised and, you know, and for people to acknowledge what it is, which is which is just they were they are pioneers of comedy and change the landscape of, of comedy in this country. And um, I'm just really honoured to be a very small part of that. Thank you all for listening to this edition of Quad Special thanks to Matt Lucas for permission to use the Peanuts music as our theme tune and thanks to Ed Lewis for this edit. Thank you to Jake Chesson for permission to use the photo from his 1995 shoot of Jim and Bob in our various online locations for the podcast. And of course, thank you very much to Jim Moyer and Bob Mortimer, without whom this podcast, well, it just wouldn't exist, would it? Remember to check out Paula's Divine Comedians podcast as well and to join the Reza Mortimer Depository of Curious Stuff Facebook group. And I think you'll agree that really was a lot of fun. Goodbye. <laughs>